Well, good morning, and welcome to our Sunday morning worship service. I'm Pastor Danny Greening, and uh, this is Clarny Mennonite Church. Uh, if you're one of our regular members, attenders, uh, you know who I am, and uh, you know what I look like. If you're a visitor just tuning in for the first time, thanks for joining us, and it's good to have you here uh, worshiping together with us. Now, one of the things that's different, of course, doing church online is that you get to see me every Sunday, but I don't get to see you. In fact, I was thinking back to the spring when the first lockdown ended, and I kept saying to everyone, it's so good to see you. And one of them said back to me, well, we're used to seeing you because we saw you every Sunday. And so uh, it's sort of a a one-way street right now. You get to see me every Sunday, but I don't get to see you. And so I just want to say from Leanne and I, we miss you, and uh, we do look forward to seeing all of you right back here again, Lord willing, Uh, very soon, but that's in his hands, and so we're going to continue to to look forward to that day and worship like this as we are able. We are in the Advent season, and we are in the second Sunday of Advent, and we want to thank David and Jamie Knight and family for lighting the Advent candles for us here today. They relit the Advent candle from the first week, the candle of hope, and now today they lit the candle of peace. And so that is our focus for this Sunday's worship service, is that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. For our offering, of course, we can't pass the basket. However, we would like to, uh, again, make you aware that you have two ways of still giving uh, to the church and to the ministry. You can come to the church in person. There's a, a box in the foyer where you can put your offering in. Uh, You can also give through the mail, and you can fill out a check, put it in the mail, uh, address that to Box 969, Clarny Mennonite Church, Clarny, Manitoba, R0K1G0, and make your checks payable to Clarny Mennonite Church. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's unite our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment for this hour in which we can gather as your people to worship you. We thank you that you are in control, that you are a good God, and that as our Father, you care for us uh, intimately and deeply in every detail and every aspect of our lives. We thank you that that is so true, especially, Lord, in the challenging days in which we live. And so we thank you that you are in control of all things great and small and that we can trust you completely. Your plans for us are good. And you have ones to give us a future and a hope. And so we count upon your promises and your presence uh, today. Father, we thank you that you are uh, at work in our hearts once more in this Advent season. That as last week we were again reminded of the reason why we have hope. And it's not a hope that this world is uh, uh, offering us, Lord. It's a hope of heaven. It's a hope that you, our Father, and Lord Jesus, our Savior, offer to us through faith. And we thank you that this hope is real and alive, burning in our hearts through faith. Again, Lord, today we focus our attention on peace, that you are our Prince of Peace, and that you bring us peace not the way that this world would offer it, but you give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Again, through your presence, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us a peace that surpasses all understanding one that can overcome even the the greatest trials that this world can throw our way. And so, Lord, we know that our world is not at peace. We are in turmoil. 
we have had a year unlike any other in recent history. And so we are troubled and we feel burdened. And yet in you, we still find our peace. We find rest for our souls. And thank you, Lord, that as we bring our burdens to you, you pick them up. And so, Lord, with this in mind, we continue to pray for the challenges in our world. We continue to pray, Lord, for all of those affected by COVID. We think of those who have lost loved ones, with those who are struggling in hospital. We pray, Lord, be near to them. Lay a healing hand upon them, we pray, according to your will. And we continue to pray, Lord, for a solution and that you would provide that way forward, Lord, for for our province, for our land, and for our world. We pray for wisdom for our, our government leaders and those making decisions, those in authority over us. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would help them to seek you for your wisdom. We pray, Lord, uh, as well for the many other challenges that we face day to day and situation to situation. We think, Lord, of those who are, are dealing with other health issues. And this morning, I want to pray specifically, Lord, for uh, fellow brother, uh, the Reverend Michael Canning from the Anglican Church as he has, uh, began his cancer treatment. We pray, Lord, for a hand upon him to guide him, and we ask if it be your will to bring him through to complete healing and wholeness that he may once more serve you, Lord, as you have called him. And so bless Michael today, we pray. Father, for anyone else today who's dealing with health issues, whether uh, visible or, or unseen, we pray, Lord, that you would be with them and lay a healing hand upon them. And Father, we thank you that you are the great physician and that ultimately our lives are in your hands. Not one day will come to pass that you have not already seen and you have laid out the days for our lives far in advance and we thank you that you have numbered them and that, Lord, secure in you we have nothing to fear. And so thank you, Father, for this confidence we have even in these days. And so now this morning, Lord, as we continue to worship you, we ask that you would be blessed by our worship, that you would be glorified, and that in return, your blessing would be passed to us that we may share it with others. As the offerings are received through, throughout the week as well, Lord, bless each gift and giver. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I would invite you now to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and there I'll be reading from verses 1 to 18, the famous story of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, 
and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So far the reading of God's word. In today's narrative sermon, I have attempted to be as historically accurate as possible in researching the extra-biblical details concerning the life of Herod the Great, as well as the mysterious order of the Magi, most often referred to as the Three Wise Men. One of my chief resources regarding King Herod is the first century historian Josephus. However, specific details regarding the Magi are surprisingly sparse, and even in Matthew's Gospel, there are very few details. In fact, we don't even know if there were only three of them. We don't know if they were kings or even if they were riding camels. Matthew simply doesn't tell us any of those things. However, in my research, I have learned that the Magi were most likely far more numerous than just three. In fact, at the very least, they would have been traveling that long distance with a large entourage of at least a company of soldiers to protect them. Remember, these are extremely wealthy men carrying a treasure with them. They wouldn't have just been the three of them unaccompanied. Also, I've learned that as magi, they would have considered camels to be pack animals and therefore beneath their dignity to ride upon them. In fact, it's well known that in that time period, in the Middle East, royalty and the very wealthy traveled almost exclusively in chariots drawn by teams of powerful Arabian horses. And so it's highly likely that the magi would have been riding on their famous journey in chariots as well, and not upon those three camels that are so often depicted in the pictures. There was a later church tradition that arose in the 8th century identifying the three magi by the names of Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar. So I have used those names in order to help tell this story within the narrative. However, I just want to be very clear that it is highly unlikely that those were the Magi's actual names. Remember, they were only tacked on in the 8th century. And again, the names are unimportant, as Matthew doesn't give us those details. However, using the names helps move the story forward. And so I hope that in all of this, you will be blessed and inspired by reliving this famous story. Would you bow with me once more?
Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your story, the story of your incredible work in this world, and that at just the right time, you sent a Savior. You sent your Son, our Prince of Peace. And we thank you that in this incredible narrative, we see the beauty and the wonder of what you have done and all of these different pieces that you masterfully wove together into a beautiful picture. And today we simply worship you and stand in awe of what you have done. I pray that this story will come alive as I share it and that you would bless and touch each heart and each mind who listens today in Jesus' name. Amen. The air crackled with tension in the throne room as the king sat hunched down upon his throne, staring daggers at the messenger kneeling before him. The numerous attendants and bodyguards could see his white-knuckled fingers tightly wrapped around the golden armrests, and a dark cloud of anger seemed to hover over his face that was pockmarked with red sores. The kneeling messenger before him dared not to breathe, much less to twitch a single muscle. For he knew that many who had gone before him had been summarily executed for delivering messages far less dangerous than the one he now carried. The tension was palpable as large beads of sweat began to roll down the messenger's face and splash upon the marble floor. Finally, the king's gravelly voice broke the silence. Tell me again, who are they and what do they want? By force of sheer willpower and training, the messenger steeled his nerve to respond clearly and without hesitation. O great king, live forever. They say they are magi from the far east and they have come here on a long journey of discovery to seek an audience with you, O great king. Now the king's voice was calm, dangerously so. And what, pray tell, do these magi seek to discover? The dreaded moment had come, and there was no point in delaying it a moment longer. The messenger instinctively knew that once this message was delivered, that not only his own life, but undoubtedly many more, would be hanging in the balance by the thinnest of threads. Swallowing hard in a futile attempt to clear his parched voice, he spoke. O great king, live forever. Their message to you is this. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. An audible intake of air could be heard around the cavernous throne room. Even as the last reverberation of the messenger's voice echoed off the mosaic tiles and the great marble pillars, all eyes were fixed on the king's face in wide-eyed terror. His face, which had previously been dark with brooding anger, now turned a purple of livid rage. His eyes bulged and his raspy voice grew louder as he spoke. King of the Jews, king of the Jews, they seek a newborn king of the Jews? Now completely livid, he lurched to his feet, his body convulsing and the spittle flying from his mouth as he bellowed, I am the king of the Jews. There is none beside me. 
As the king's enraged voice thundered over him, the messenger knew. He knew that this was it. His life was forfeit. He had long suspected the day would come, that he would have to deliver the one message that would kill him. For everyone under the sun knew that above all else, King Herod was a killer. But then, just as suddenly as the king's fury had boiled to the surface, it vanished. A crafty look flashed across his face as he slumped back down upon his throne. His paranoid mind began to work away at this new threat from every angle, looking for the best path to eliminate it. There had been countless threats to his crown over the years, but each one in turn had been solved by cunning, blade, poison, and blood. Herod's mind flashed back to that proudest day of his life, when as a much, much younger man, he had stood in the great halls of the Roman Senate, where Gaius Octavius, better known as Caesar Augustus, had pronounced him Herod I, King of the Jews. But that glorious title had been earned at a high cost. For at the young age of 25, Herod's powerful father, Antipur, had used his access to the great Julius Caesar to have his son appointed as the governor of the region of Galilee. But the Jewish zealots who were loyal to the Jewish high priest Hyrcanus, leader of the Sanhedrin, had risen up in rebellion against Herod, seeking to depose him. And so facing his first true test of leadership, Herod's forces had prevailed in battle. He had also captured the enemy commanders and then, without trial or mercy, he had them publicly executed in barbaric fashion. Let that be a warning to the others. Very quickly, Herod learned that fear, deception, and intimidation were his most powerful weapons as a ruler, and he learned to wield them skillfully. It was the way of Pax Romana, earning peace through the ruthless application of power. Narrowly escaping one political intrigue after another, Herod had always found a way to survive and somehow managed to even work his way into Octavius's good graces. In truth, Octavius viewed Herod as nothing more than a useful puppet of Rome one that he could use to consolidate Rome's rule and control over Judea by proxy. But even though Herod knew that he was a mere vassal king, he did not care. For now, armed by Rome itself, with a royal title, and then the military might of two Roman legions to command as his own personal army, he had the power necessary to prove himself worthy of the title. He would forge it in battle and seal it with the blood of his chief rival, Matthias Antogenes, who still ruled Judea from the seat of power in Jerusalem. Herod's subsequent siege of Jerusalem in 37 BC was long and devastating. But once again, Herod's forces had prevailed in battle and also succeeded in capturing Matthias Antogenes. With grim satisfaction, Herod recalled that triumphant moment when he had passed through the king's gate into Jerusalem as its conqueror, 
and had then had Antigenus dragged before him in chains. At the very least, he could respect the fact that Antigenus had not debased himself by begging for mercy. Such courage, even by an enemy, deserved respect, and so Herod had rewarded him with the mercifully swift death of beheading. But that had only been the beginning of the bloodletting. His still tenuous grasp on the throne of Judea needed to be firmly secured with an iron hand, and iron it had been. When all was said and done, some 13,000 political dissidents had been hunted down and executed. So with his kingdom now firmly established upon the blood of his enemies, Herod reigned alone as the undisputed king of the Jews. And he would let nothing and no one ever take that away from him, not even his own sons. And so Herod's long, dark descent into paranoid madness had begun in earnest. Determined to not only be feared by the people, but also to be accepted as one of them, he arranged with the Jewish high priest, Hyrcanus, to marry his beautiful granddaughter, Miriam, and thereby solidify his claim as the rightful heir to the throne of Judea. He had truly loved Miriam, as much as he was capable of, that is, but she did not return his affections. So distraught was she, in fact, that rather than continue to endure Herod's advances, she attempted suicide. She failed in the attempt. But so infuriated was he by her rejection and perceived betrayal that he then had Miriam arrested, tried, and executed. But her death haunted him, sending him ever deeper into paranoid delusions. He saw threats to his throne hidden in every shadow. And so he established an elite 2,000-member personal bodyguard, complete with a secret police to uncover plots against him, whether real or perceived. People simply disappeared in Herod's kingdom without any questions being asked. He had thousands of completely innocent people executed over the span of his decades-long reign, including two of his brother-in-laws, one mother-in-law, and perhaps most chilling of all, even his own sons. For when Herod came to believe that two of his sons were plotting to depose him and to take the throne, he had them strangled to death. It was no wonder that even Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. But what did any of that matter to him? For was he not Herod the Great, the architect and builder of the magnificent port city of Caesarea, the mountaintop fortress of Masada, the opulent Herodian palace, and the majestic great temple of Jerusalem, the likes of which even Rome itself could not rival? Yes, his legacy was secure. His greatness would be remembered for all time so long as this final threat of a newborn king of the Jews was found and eliminated, of course. But now how to deal with these meddling magi? 
Should he arrest and execute them on false charges? No, that wouldn't do. From what he knew of them, these magi were very powerful and well-connected to the various Persian and Arab kingdoms. They were so rich and powerful, in fact, that many considered the magi to be kings themselves. They were said to be king-makers and the guardians of ancient wisdom, those who could read the secrets hidden in the stars and reveal their true meanings. No, there was no need to risk sparking an international incident and bringing a Persian army down on his head. And besides, they weren't the real threat. This baby was the threat. And why did his spies not know anything of this child? They knew as well as he that those Jewish zealots were always looking for their so-called Messiah in order to justify a new uprising. But wait, that was it. For had they not said that they had seen his star which had led them here? Now, he was no Jewish scholar, but this whole baby king and star business had the ring of one of those ancient Jewish prophecies to it. Yes, yes, that was the key. He knew what to do. Herod's voice then shattered the tense silence of the throne room. Summon the chief priests. Summon the Sanhedrin. Bring me every last teacher of the law and let's get to the bottom of this newborn king business. Then even as he spoke, another idea entered his mind. He would simply play along and use these magi to lead him straight to the child. Yes, it would be so simple. And then, and then, well, then, that was the easy part. Finally, looking down at the messenger, still trembling before him, Herod barked, Well, what are you waiting for? You have your orders. Go. And then, like a man given reprieve from the executioner's blade at the last possible moment, the messenger took his leave, thanking God for sparing his life. And even as he left, he heard the king's maniacal voice echo down the hall once more, I, I am the king of the Jews. And indeed he was, at least in his own mind. I don't have a good feeling about this, Balthazar. Something just seems off with this King Herod. The dignified man who spoke sat cross-legged on a fine woven bed before a warm fire. He was clad from head to toe in only the finest of Persian traveling garb, which combined both the highest of fashion and function. It was no wonder that people often mistook him for a king. His two traveling companions were dressed in similar fashion. However, to an observant eye, the well-worn creases and accumulated dust from the road revealed that they had traveled for many miles and many days. Lying just over the next rise on the road, up from Jericho, was the city of Jerusalem. Around their roadside encampment stood their gleaming chariots, which were pulled by powerful teams of the finest Arabian horses that money could buy. All around them was their formidable entourage, which included more of their magi brethren, an armed escort of soldiers, and of course, 
their many servants who rode upon the camel supply train and were now carrying out their regular duties as they settled in for the night. Yes, Gaspar, the man addressed as Balthazar replied. I too have found it very strange that the Jewish people themselves seem to be completely oblivious to the birth of their own long-awaited king. The third man at the campfire recited from memory, A star will rise out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Yes, Malquire, so Balaam prophesied in ancient times, replied Gaspar. And it simply must be so, for what else can explain the presence of this star that even our most ancient records reveal has never burned before? At this, all three men, by long force of habit, turned their eyes upwards towards the vast night sky above. The sun had long since set, and the sky was a sparkling canvas of starlight from the eastern horizon to the west. Their trained eyes could immediately read the constellations and their positions in the night sky, just as easily as a scholar might read the words of a scroll. Everything was still perfectly aligned to signal the birth of Israel's king. But on this night, their eyes again searched in vain for the miraculous star that had sparked their long journey months earlier. For ever since they had crossed the Jordan River and entered that promised land conquered by Joshua so many years before, the star had vanished. Where have you gone? mused Balthazar, looking up at the last position the star had been seen. It must mean something, added Melchior. Well, whatever the meaning, Balthazar continued, we have no choice but to meet with King Herod now. Yes, he would see it as a great insult if we refused his invitation now, replied Gaspar. But why does he insist that we must meet in secret? I told you, something seems off with him. And even if half the stories we've heard of him are true, Gaspar's voice trailed off as Balthazar interjected. Yes, yes, we know. He's a bloodthirsty despot who murdered his wife and sons. But have we not handled more powerful kings and tyrants than even he? Remember, Herod is but a lapdog to Caesar, who rules only so long as it suits Rome. His leash may be long, yes, but I assure you that even he knows better than to spark a war with Persia by so much as touching even a hair upon our heads. There was a momentary silence, for they knew that Balthazar spoke the truth. Their thoughts then inevitably shifted to the one subject that had captivated their minds and hearts for so long, the newborn king. Finally, in a low, almost reverent voice, Gaspar spoke into the night sky. We are so close now, and so I wonder, what will he be like? To this, no immediate response was offered by either of his traveling companions. Finally, Malquire recited, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, Balthazar mused, 
not Pax Romana, but the peace of heaven. So may it be a true peace, an eternal peace, for that is what my heart seeks most in this world. And for another long moment, the three men sat in silence, staring up at the stars, each lost in his own thoughts. Then at long last they went to bed, but though they were weary, sleep did not come quickly. Aside from the fact that Herod had requested a secret audience with the Magi, without listening ears of his regular court or advisors, the preliminary pomp and ceremony of their audience with the king was not unlike many other such meetings they had had in their lives. With one exception, Herod did not look well. His face was peppered with red festering sores. His body would almost seem to convulse from time to time, and his darting eyes were bloodshot. But even as it was clear that Herod, sick though he was, was sizing them up, far from being antagonistic, he seemed almost amenable and genuinely curious as to the time that the star had first appeared, and then how long their subsequent journey had been. Further still, he appeared eager to help them in their search. He had already set his city's greatest Jewish scholars to scour the ancient scrolls to learn the prophesied birthplace of the newborn king of the Jews, the one they reverently referred to as the Messiah. The Magi had listened with rapt attention as the prophecy of Micah had been read. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd to my people Israel. But even as it appeared that their audience was now coming close to an end, Gaspar wondered to himself, could it really be this easy? Was Herod really just going to give them the answer they sought and then let them stroll away without receiving anything in return? Not a king on earth was that benevolent, let alone Herod the butcher. Then King Herod cleared his throat and spoke. Now, my distinguished guests, go and make careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me. He paused, and then his face seemed to contort almost painfully in what appeared to be an attempt to smile. He continued, So that I, too, may come to worship him. Do you trust him? Balthasar asked Gaspar as their chariots rolled along the road in the direction of Bethlehem. About as much as his own sons could trust him, I suppose, came the reply. I agree, Balthazar said, but we've come this far now. We're so close. There's no turning back. Then coming from Melchior, riding in the chariots just ahead, they heard him shout, Look, the star! It's back! The sun had just been setting to the west, where in the distance they could yet see the glint of the great sea. Instantly darting their eyes back to the sky, they immediately saw it was so. There, glowing more brightly than they had ever seen it before. It was almost as though it was moving before them. No, it couldn't be. Stars simply don't move like that. 
They all rubbed their eyes, squinted, and looked again. But now it was simply unmistakable. The star was somehow going before them, like a lighthouse beacon illuminating the pathway to the king. The sudden thought crossed Gaspar's mind. We are following the star, even as it is the star that follows the king. At this, a shout of pure jubilation rang from his lips, and soon the entire caravan, from magi to soldier to servant, were hooting and hollering, rejoicing in the glowing light of the miraculous star burning above once more. The five miles to Bethlehem simply flew by under the animal's hooves, as in their pure excitement they spurred them on to top speeds. At their arrival, the houses of of the town of Bethlehem glowed peacefully under the glowing night sky. And then it happened. Later, they could never properly explain what happened, let alone how it happened, but that mysterious glowing star suddenly stopped. And not only did it stop, it stopped in such a way above one small house that it became immediately apparent to everyone that at long last, after many months, they had arrived. Their long journey was at its destination, and the baby king was waiting just inside. As they dismounted and approached the home, their hearts beat faster And they could begin to see curious looks darting at them through closed windows and doorways at the sudden appearance of such a royal entourage in their sleepy little town. The moment had come, and Balthazar knocked. A simple yet strong-looking man answered the door. His eyes registered clear surprise at their presence, and yet at the same time it was almost as though he had been expecting them. How can I help you? Balthazar's voice was reverent. We have come to worship the newborn king. Then Joseph's eyes grew wide, and he stepped aside, swinging the door open. And there before their eyes was the mother and child. The Magi's response was immediate and heartfelt as they prostrated themselves on the floor before the child in worship. None of them could ever explain that moment to anyone else. Only those who had been present that day and shared in that spontaneous worship service of the newborn King of the Jews knew what it was like. The irony that they, as Gentile magi, were the first royalty to worship the newborn king of Israel, even before King Herod, while it was not lost on them. But in that moment, none of it mattered. All that mattered was that this child, the Prince of Peace, had arrived on earth. And as they worshipped, they felt and truly believed that nothing would ever be the same again. For now, not only was peace possible, But it was present, radiating forth from this special child. Finally, Balthazar found his voice. And what is his name? The young mother looked down at her child cradled peacefully in her arms and said softly, Jesus, his name 
is Jesus. Balthazar's reply was almost a whisper. It is a good name, one fitting of a king. And then at long last in that moment, as all three looked at one another with tears of joy yet streaming down their faces, they all came to the same incredible realization. This baby, Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel who had come down from heaven to earth, he had not just come to bring peace for the Jews and for Israel, but he had also come to bring peace to the Gentiles and to the world. He had come for them. For why else would a star have appeared to them in a far-off and distant land, if not to summon them? And how could they have known to be summoned by that star, if not for their understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, that had been brought to their land many centuries earlier, and the mysteries therein explained to them, by that great man Daniel, the chief of the Magi, leader of Babylon's ancient order. No, none of it was by coincidence at all. Though most assuredly it was a mystery far greater than even they as a Magi could ever solve or comprehend, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were meant to be right there, right then, for this moment in history. And was it not fitting that they as magi, so often referred to as king makers, should be the very ones to welcome this greatest of all kings into the world? Then, bowing low before the child once more, they each in turn presented him with their precious gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In such quality and quantity that the parents' eyes had grown wide and their mouths had gaped at seeing the sheer opulence of the gifts. No one knew how long they had been there, but seemingly all too soon the worship service came to an end. The child still needed to sleep, and they had to take their leave. And as they returned to their chariots, they looked up once more and could still see that glowing high overhead was the special star shining brightly, directly above the place where the king lay. Later that very night, Gaspar had a terrifyingly vivid dream of slaughter of children and soldiers and blood, warning them of King Herod's coming treachery. It only confirmed what they had already suspected was true, that Herod had no desire to come and worship the true king of the Jews, but rather desired to come and eliminate him, just as he had done with so many others, even his own sons. The decision to take the south road home and avoid returning back through Jerusalem had been an easy one, and they made haste to clear Herod's borders before the tyrant could realize they had fled and give chase. In spite of this, as they began the long journey home, their hearts still glowed and their mouths rejoiced, at all of the marvelous things they had seen and heard. Yes, even though Herod may still be on the throne for now, a new king had arrived, a different sort of king, and it was only a matter of time before he would set everything right. 
the same royal messenger found himself in the same precarious position that he had been in only a short time earlier. Kneeling prostrate before King Herod's throne, tasked to deliver a message that very well could lead to him being killed on the spot. Herod's raspy voice lashed out like a whip. Well, where are they staying? Where are those magi? Oh, great king, live forever, replied the quivering voice of the messenger. The captain of the guard reports that that they have slipped away by the southern road and have escaped the region. Though face down on the floor, the messenger could well envision the expression of pure rage building upon Herod's face, and he was not wrong. Even by Herod's own standards, the following tirade of hate-fueled rage was simply terrifying. But more terrifying still was his next order. Every baby boy, age two and under, every last one in the town of Bethlehem and all of its districts, kill them all. And as the Mad King ordered the unthinkable, so it was done. And the slaughter commenced. The shouts of soldiers the protests of fathers, the wails of mothers, and the screams of infants and toddlers all intermingled into one cacophony of terror as the streets of Bethlehem ran red with the blood of the innocents. But even as the self-described king of the Jews desperately tried to eradicate the one true king of the Jews, he was already well down the road to Egypt, safe in his mother's arms and under his father's care, both above and below. No, Joseph, Mary, Mary, the Magi, nor anyone could possibly understand how all of these seemingly random events, coupled together with one of the most bloodthirsty, unstable, paranoid tyrants in all of history, could possibly be part of God's plan to usher in peace on earth. But though in their minds they could not understand, yet in their hearts they somehow believed that it was true. And Mary knew that not only was peace coming, but that peace was already here. For she was holding the Prince of Peace in her arms. No, God's peace sent into the world had not come in the form of a political kingdom, an idea or even a state of mind, it came in the form of a tiny baby named Jesus. The angel's song that the shepherds had shared with them that night played back across her mind. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Prince of Peace that you sent all those years ago into such a violent world filled with so many wicked men, men like King Herod. A dangerous world, one in which your son would need divine protection just to make it through to the very place and time, the moment for which he was sent to die a criminal's death upon a cruel Roman cross. 
to have that sign of all signs once more hung upon his cross right above his head, King of the Jews. And though Pilate did not comprehend or understand the true meaning of what that sign meant, you knew. And that all through the ages and all through time, not one detail, not one seemingly random event happened by chance, but according to your design, that your Prince of Peace, the one known as the King of the Jews, would be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that, Lord, all of these things that you put together have pointed the way to him for each one of us. Through a star mysteriously appearing in the sky, through unnamed magi, through shepherds who remain anonymous to this day, through so many others, Lord, you pointed and you drew all men, all women, all boys, all girls to this one single truth that your Savior had come into the world and that he came to save us all. We thank you for the beauty and the majesty of your plan. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Even as those magi did, we prostrate our hearts before you in worship that you have come to save us. You are our Prince of Peace. Our hearts belong to you through faith. And we thank you that one day soon we will see you once more shining like the star in the sky with all the hosts of heaven. And we will be found in you on that great day when you will come as the one true king and establish your reign upon this earth for all time and eternity. And we welcome it. And until that day, may we be found firm in faith in you and may your peace guard our hearts even as we live in this still dark and troubled world. For your peace has come and it is born in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. May God bless you richly in the week ahead. And Lord willing, I'll see you again right here next Sunday.